Our scripture reading this morning is found in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 17. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again, and to those tuning in on uh, Facebook Live, and for those listening in to the audio, we welcome you. Uh, For those who do not know me, my name is Patrick, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the Word Church, and we are in week four of this season we call Lent, 
that leads up this 40-day journey, not counting Sundays because it would be 46, but 40-day journey leading up to the power of Easter. And throughout this season of Lent, uh, we have been discussing some of the things that clutter our lives and seeking ways that we can unhinder ourselves to be freed up and unburdened to embrace God in the season of Lent. And so what are some of the things we've talked about in the past, in the past Sundays? Anybody remember? Here's pop quiz time. Break out your sermon notes from past Sundays. You can use that if you have them. Talked about being busy and noise. Somebody was listening. I hear that. Being called. Last Sunday, Rachel spoke about being called or driven and what it kind of the difference between the two and what it means to be driven out of your call. Well, this Sunday, we're going to be discussing a very personal topic me, myself, and I. But before we delve into the depth of self, let's go to God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for your scriptures and how you speak to us today, and we thank you for the witness of those who have gone before us, like the Apostle Paul, who helped to instruct us in the faith even today. And Lord, as we dig deeper into your word, we need your guidance, we need your help. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be upon us, that you'd open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to receive your word to us. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten, but may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, amen. So there's a true but sad story that I'd like to start out with about Cosmo Gordon Lang. How many people here know about Cosmo Gordon Lang? I wouldn't expect you to. That's fine. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, from 1928 to 1942. So, a holy man. And in those days, there was no uh, required or established retirement age, kind of like we have today for archbishops. So, it was kind of whenever they felt it was time. And so, when he reached his late 70s, he realized that he was becoming physically frail and decided that this was the time to leave office. But it's interesting, and why I share this story is his revealing comment that he shared with a colleague upon his departure. It showed his real fear, a fear which one might have hoped an archbishop would not have, or maybe would have outgrown. Here's what he said. Having having been somebody, he remarked, I shall now be nobody. Having been somebody, I now shall be nobody. It's a telling remark, isn't it? It's an interesting question. Just whom was Cosmo living for? If he was somehow leaving his office, he was going to go from being somebody to nobody. Who was he living for? And where did his pursuits for himself lead him? So let's turn the question around on ourselves. Just where do your pursuits in life 
lead? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Where do your pursuits lead? Do you ever fear that you might become nobody? Have you ever had that fear? See, I'm, I'm fascinated by generational studies. If you spend any time with me, usually I'll bring it up at some point along the way, but I'm fascinated by generational studies. It's interesting to me how each generation, uh, each generation is built on characteristics of the past and how each generational wrestles with its own questions and has its own identity and we can kind of block it out and see it. And there have been countless articles in recent years written about millennials. Millennials are all the talk right now, largely because they're the generation that is coming up into leadership now in corporations and politics and all of that. And so it's important to know about these millennials. But I have to say, much of the commentary about millennials has not been very kind and quite critical. Many refer to millennials as the me generation. Have you ever heard that? The me generation. Now, as someone who falls at the very beginning of the millennial generation, I do find some of the critiques to be a little overly critical. Though it is, I have to say, a bit funny to me to witness that throughout history, each generation tends to love to complain about the generation that follows. And why it's funny to me is the great irony that the generation that follows is a product of the parenting of the previous generation that is critical of them. Don't you see the irony there a little bit? But it's interesting how each builds on itself. Now, I'm not here to defend my generation. We have our faults. As every generation does, we have our faults. We are a product of many major shifts in our culture. Technology, politics, the world is bigger than ever, and I do wonder how that impacts the thought process of a generation when now China isn't that far away anymore because of technology. We've shifted from being citizens of a particular country to citizens of the world because we have a world economy that dictates so much. Perhaps being overwhelmed by the many, it is easier to turn inward towards ourselves. Being overwhelmed by this thing that's much bigger, it's easier to start worrying about fighting to be somebody. Do you ever feel like you have to fight to be somebody when you're in a large place with so many people? Who am I in the midst of the many? But selfishness doesn't originate with millennials, does it? As selfish as millennials might be, it doesn't originate with them. It has deeper roots. Selfishness didn't begin with this generation. So let's give millennials a break for a moment. Let's consider a harsh reality for us. We are all selfish. I'm selfish, and I believe if, the, if you're really honest with yourself, you might admit that you have some selfish tendencies yourself. If parenting has taught me anything, it's that we're born innocent, but we are born selfish sinners. We may be innocent, but we are born selfish sinners. You see, from the very beginning in the womb, we are parasites, feeding off the nutrition of our mother, even to the detriment of our mother. 
And we aren't that much better once we are birthed into this world because we are so selfish and needy. I mean, there's nothing more needy than a baby. Before we can even speak, we learn how to manipulate the people in our lives just by crying. You cry and things happen. Food happens, you get a diaper change, and all you have to do is cry and annoy the heck out of people. Give me, I want, and mine are some of the earliest words we learn. That identity of self. I wish I could say that we completely outgrow it, but sadly, we don't. We just learn to cope with it a little bit better to various degrees as we get older. But the sin of self goes back even further, doesn't it? It goes back even further than conception and our birth. It, at the genesis, in the beginning of our creation itself, God created all and created humanity. At the beginning, we see this perfect harmony in the Garden of Eden, and all the way up until that profound moment when we witness what we call the fall, right? You have the first woman and the first man, Eve and Adam. They are the first generation of me. And they broke the one rule they had, do not eat the fruit of the tree of what? Of knowledge of good and evil. We see the true sin when we take a closer look at Eve's conversation with the serpent just before that fatal bite. This is in chapter 3, verse 3 of Genesis. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to that last comment again. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, it was lured by the promise of being like God that Adam and Eve went against God and sin entered the world. But let's face it, the sin happened just before the first bite. Pride came before the fall, did it not? The sin happened just before the first bite. The sin happened when the created thought they could be selfishly equal to their creator. That was the sin. We need not look far to see the deep consequences of their choices. Their selfish pursuit of self and being like God led humanity down a dark, irreversible path of destruction that God is still seeking to redeem today. And we see that throughout the rest of Scripture is God chasing after this selfish humanity, trying to bring them back into the harmony of His redeemed creation. See, God wants more for us. God has more in store for us because God knows better than anyone where our selfishness leads. Pursuing a kingdom of me only leads to to destruction, an empty void because when I depend on myself, I only have myself and nothing more. Isn't that ironic? So here's the question for you to consider. Are you choosing to live for a lesser kingdom 
a kingdom of population one. Do you want to live for more? Do you have a desire to live for something more? Do you have a desire to be a part of something much bigger, much greater than yourself? Do you? Who among you could live without a computer? Anybody here? Maybe you have a few poor. Evelyn's like real quick to throw up. The rest of everybody else is like, hmm, sorry. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't that long ago computers weren't even really in existence, but now we are so dependent upon computers. So many things are done. The world has been shaped and changed. They're everywhere. And it's only a recent thing. It's interesting, just three generations ago, the chairman of IBM declared that, the world, that there was a world market for only five computers. Isn't that interesting? And as recent as 1977, the president of digital equipment claimed there was no reason anyone would want to have a computer in their home. We have them in our pockets now, not just our homes, do we? And so, despite your opinions of him, one of the biggest players in the tech revolution has to be Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers. Steve Jobs was just 21 when he and his friend Steve Wozniak invented the Apple computer. Until then, computers were these monstrous things of vacuum tubes that took up whole rooms. Then the two Steves managed to take that mass of tubes and incorporate them into a box that could fit on a desk completely changing computers. Jobs and Wozniak offered their invention to Atari, the gaming company, first. They really weren't trying to make big bucks at the time. Really, they just wanted a salary so that they'd have the opportunity to continue their work. But guess what Atari said? No, we'll pass. And so Atari ended up turning to Hewlett-Packard, HP, and HP said, yeah, we're, we're not interested either. So it seems that Jobs and Wozniak alone could see the possibilities of what they were working on. And they believed in it so much that Steve Jobs sold his Volkswagen. Wozniak had this nice calculator, and they sold it for all of these for $1,300, and they used that money to start Apple computers. By the way, Apple comes from a memory that Steve Jobs has of working in an orchard. That's where it got its name, Apple. See, the rest is history. By all accounts, Steve Jobs is a visionary and was a visionary. He was spurred on by this vision of the successful company changing the world. But Jobs soon discovered that his vision was, was to reach, if it was to reach fruition, he needed somebody with greater management skills and expertise than he. So, Jobs approached a man by the name of John Scully, then the president of PepsiCo, the Pepsi company. There was absolutely no reason why Scully should leave this highly paid, sought-after position in a world-leading company to go work with a bunch of computer nerds in this beginning fledgling company. And so, to no surprise to us, he turned him down. But Steve wasn't going to take no for an answer, so he went back to him a second time and offered him, and he turned him down again. But finally, in one last-ditch effort, Jobs returned to Scully for his final appeal, and he passionately presented his vision for the future. 
and he changed Scully's opinion by asking him one simple question. And the question was this, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want the chance to change the world? Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world? Indeed, Jobs and Scully did change the world. By no account am I suggesting that Jobs or Scully are selfless saints. But Jobs does raise an interesting question in a perspective and pursuit. Jesus comes to us with a similar question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Something sweet at first, but with no lasting benefits? Or do you want a chance to change the world? Which do you choose? See, similar to Jobs, the Apostle Paul had a different perspective and a grand vision for the future. Yet Paul's vision vision wasn't shaped by corporate achievement or technology. He had a desire to change how people view this world in which we live. He wanted people to see the coming restoration of the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul is preaching to the Roman citizens in Corinth in the passage we read earlier. Paul is posing a logical argument comparing and contrasting the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. But Paul realizes that his message he is compelled to share just doesn't make sense to the ears of those listening Roman citizens. See, these Roman citizens prided themselves on wisdom and intellect, and, and they looked at the world around them. They were a part of mighty Rome. What could Paul have to offer them? They were the ones shaping and changing the world. Paul sees it quite differently. And we see it in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Paul is essentially saying here, hey, I know this sounds crazy to you, but am I crazy or are you for your pursuit of a life that is only leading to death? See, I choose the power of God, or to use the words of Steve Jobs, It can and will change the world. So your wisdom can't even come close to God's foolishness. As we were reminded on Ash Wednesday, we are dust and to dust we will return. Pursuing the kingdom of me, myself, and I is just an exercise in futility. It has nothing more to offer. Like sugared water, soda tastes good and brings instant gratification, but does it really lead to a happy life as the commercials would lead us to believe? Will drinking a Coke or a Pepsi extend your life in any way? Is it even healthy? See, Paul doesn't end here, does he? He knocks down their world to shift their perspective to another. He continues in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Then he continues in verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This leads to our first truth. Our first truth is this. The wisdom of the Creator is greater than the wisdom of the created. The wisdom of the Creator is greater than the wisdom of the created. See, Paul goes to great lengths to to compare and contrast that, saying, look, you at your wisest aren't even close to God. You at your wisest isn't even wiser than God's foolishness. If God were to ever be foolish, you can't even measure up. You can't compare the two. God is greater. So if this is true, then whose wisdom should we pursue? God or ourselves? Who knows us better, ourselves or God who created us, every aspect? A worldly human perspective or God's, the divine architect, the loving creator, who is the wisest? So given that God is so much wiser, what does God have to say for us to do if we are to pursue His kingdom. Who better than to speak to God's wisdom than God incarnate and Jesus? See, in the Gospel of Matthew, we get to overhear this conversation that Jesus is having with His disciples about this very question of living for God's kingdom. If we look at chapter 16, verse 24, we see what he's teaching. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give to ret- in return for his soul. Isn't it interesting? In God's economy, everything is turned upside down, at least from our perspective. It's reversed. It defies our logic. But maybe that isn't a bad thing, given where our foolish logic tends to lead. Jesus shares the secret to becoming a world changer at the beginning of a statement. Look closely at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's look at those two statements. Denying himself and then taking up his cross and following. So denying self. First, we deny ourselves. But what does that really mean? See, the Greek word that's translated as deny here could also mean to disown, to renounce. Used within this context, in this imagery it's of taking up the cross and following Jesus, denying oneself conveys a sense of a person disassociating himself from his self-interest for a higher purpose. Renouncing self for a higher purpose. 
See, Paul talks about this in his letters to the Galatians. He develops this idea of being crucified with Christ so that we can allow Christ to live within him. That's where we get the statement, die to self, not just deny self, but die to self. Be crucified with Christ to live in this new creation. When we die to ourselves, we can then begin to live for Christ. In Christ, with Christ, and by Christ. We stop drinking sugared water and we start drinking the living water. This leads us to our second truth. The death of self leads to life. The death of self leads to life when we cling to Christ, when we allow ourselves to be crucified with Christ. Because dying to self really isn't that bad of a thing. Dying to self can actually make things easier in some ways. Because, for example, we no longer are upset when we're overlooked. We're content with being who we are. Have you ever been in a situation where you did something and then you don't get credit for it and somebody else gets credit for it? And then, you know, you're, when you're in yourself, it bothers you. But if your identity is not found in that, it's like, okay, that's great. Sometimes as teachers, especially, we have to do that for students. We don't take credit, even though we, we're the ones behind it, because they're the ones who need to be lifted up. Dying to self lets us not have to worry about what we've accomplished what you might achieve, how many accolades, awards you might receive, how much money you may make or the success you may find. Your worth and identity are found no longer in self, but in God. Want to know how much God values you? Just wait to Good Friday and keep watch the three days to discover the power of the empty cross, the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again for you. That's some powerful love. There's no greater love than this than one would lay down their life for another. And Jesus laid down his life for the world in great love. Yet even knowing that our worth and our identity is found in something, someone far greater, denying and dying to self doesn't come easy, does it? We must, must, but must we do it all alone? See, too often we strive for self-denial in our own strength. But consider this. Trusting in ourselves to deny ourselves is an oxymoron. How can we trust in ourselves to deny ourselves? Self-sacrifice is not refreshing to the ego, but often feels like death. And doubly so when our sacrifice seems to be in vain. While our own effort is vitally important, it's empty without the catalyzation of the Holy Spirit. Counting others more significant than ourselves as an activity that starts with, is born along by, and finds its fulfillment in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We do not have to do it alone. God guides us through the Holy Spirit. But what does that really look like? Take up the cross and follow me, Jesus says. Jesus shares what it really looks like to to deny and die to self 
with the second part of his statement. Take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means that we must begin to burden ourselves with the perspective of what God truly cares about. Because God's reversed economy, that burden is what brings life. This leads us to our third and final truth. To pursue God is to care for what God cares about. It's shifting our priorities. It's shifting our perspective And you know, it's a lifelong pursuit, isn't it? It doesn't just happen like that. Just as children don't come to see the world and its complete understanding in a day, it takes a lifetime of learning and growing in our wisdom. And shifting our perspective takes that, but are we taking steps in that direction to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus? Are you pursuing Jesus? Are you taking up your cross? Are you willing to deny yourself? It's a lifelong journey, but that journey can begin right now in prayer. And so I'd like to close with a poem I found that I thought was great. It's a poem by, called My Kingdom by Louisa May Alcott. And it is, in sorts, a prayer. So let's close with this prayer. A little kingdom I possess, where thoughts and feelings dwell, and very hard I find the task of governing it well. For passion tempts and troubles me, a wayward will misleads, and selfishness its shadow casts on all my words and deeds. How can I learn to rule myself, to be the child I should, honest and brave, nor even tire of trying to be good? How can I keep a sunny soul to shine along life's way? How can I tune my little heart to sweetly sing all day? Dear Father, help me with the love that casts out out my fear. Teach me to lean on Thee and feel that Thou art very near. That no temptation is unseen, no childish grief too small. Since, the, since thou with patience infinite doth soothe and comfort all. I do not ask for any crown, but that which all may win, nor seek to conquer any world except the one within. Be thou my guide until I find, led by a tender hand, thy happy kingdom in myself, and dare to take command. Amen.